you remember, this is from the sermon last week, um, when I was talking about a dream that I had, it was prophetic, and it was a very odd sermon, which I confess up front, but important, and I think uh, one that I, uh, I'm standing by, and I think is true. This is just a reminder to me to tell you, uh, this was me in my dream, I was pushing a cart uh, down from uh, my old church into this church, into the new church, and what God was telling me is that a lot of the things in my cart that I thought were important just weren't that important, were just things I didn't really need. And so I'm not going to go through the whole thing again, uh, but in, in short, in summary, what I want from you all is prayerful thoughts, prayer, first of all, and thoughts about, as, as we go into our new space, what our service should look like. Uh, and I mean service in the broad sense of the word, not just our Sunday morning service, but our service here in the community, what it should look like. Uh, because I brought a lot of presumptions with me as a pastor, and when we started Cornerstone, I just kind of um, regurgitated sort of reflexively the service I had come from. Uh, so everything is, you know, very similar to that. And it's good, and it's fine, nothing wrong with it. Uh, but my sense from the dream was like, just rethink things. Think about what could be new or what could be different or what would serve our community best. Uh, and I encourage you to think of that in terms of our community, not just me, <laughs> what would serve me best, although that's important, but to think about us as a whole, what would be best in terms of, uh, one of the things I thought is, you know, um, I know a lot of you and myself actually appreciate um, uh, more aspects of the more formal liturgy, uh, not in the whole, we wouldn't turn our whole service into a liturgical service, but aspects of it. Um, you know, uh, readings and whatnot, Lord's Prayer. Or, I mean, I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. But things like that, if you have ideas or things that you've seen in other churches that you really thought were powerful and moving, I, I want those emails. This is the pastor saying, please critique the service. You're not going to hear this very often. So <laughs> uh, this is my invitation to you. Okay. So I've been pursuing God's heart and pursuing God's spirit this week in terms of what God is it you're trying to tell me. You know, we were in Ezra and Nehemiah, and I just got sort of sidetracked by that dream and onto this discussion of, of sin and anthropology, what, who we are as human beings. And I felt like God's message was still go, deep, go deeper with this. And it's going to come back to Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, I have a sense of how God is uh, weaving this all together. But Today, I'm going to go even deeper still with some of the concepts I talked about uh, last week. So we're going to talk about being human and what it means to be a human being, and, what, and especially as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, and as one who believes in the Bible, if you do, uh, what, that's, what you ought to, I'm going to use the word ought, what you ought to believe about being human, what the biblical witness is. And to hold that up against what you really believe in your heart about what it means to be human or what the world tells us is what it means to be human. This is a human. Or some facsimile thereof. So we're going to build a human, in essence, uh, starting with this rather awkward-looking uh, digital model. And we're going to talk about it. Now, I know... And appropriately so. Uh, I, I know that diversity is kind of the order of the day, uh, which is to say it's sort of the, 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 the catchword and the movements uh, that excite and inspire people of this generation are, is diversity. There's a lot of talk about diversity and what it means and whatnot, and that's all important. But for humans, the way in which we are all the same, to me, is a more profound discussion. The unity of humanity is, a, a, and sometimes, a harder discussion than diversity. 
um, what is germane to our humanity and what makes us human? Because there's something that combines us all together under that rubric of human. In fact, if there wasn't, there wouldn't be one word that captures us all as human. When I say human, we all, we think of everybody, right? Doesn't matter what country you're from, what color your skin is, we are all human. Or to put it another way, great evil is derived when we do damage to that, uh, that meaning. So, of course, the biblical witness does provide a definition of what it means to be a human being through the course of Genesis through Revelation. Um, and its claim is that this definition of what it means to be a human being is uh, definitive and comprehensive in all the ways that matter. It's not comprehensive in the sense it doesn't talk about cell, cells or DNA or not comprehensive in a scientific sense, but comprehensive in the ways that matter for us as to what, when we wake up in the morning, it's like, well, what does it mean to be a human being? Those ways. So, what does the Bible say about being a human? Now, some of these things I'm going to say might sound obvious to you, but I want you to really think deeply about this and consider if this is truly what you believe with a capital B in the depth of your soul. So, Caleb, can you give me the next one there? One is value and worth. I think that's the, the first step, first building block of biblically, what does it mean to be human? And this is part of what we preach and teach as a community and what we, as Christians, what we invest into the society, if that makes sense, what we bring, that humans have intrinsic, inherent value, God-given value. It's something we, to our uh, detriment, often take for granted in our discussions, be they political, sociological, or philosophical. It is not assumed that humans have intrinsic value. Uh, and in fact, I encourage you to do what I did this week. If you're interested in some of there are there are deep and profound discussions going on within the agnostic and atheistic community about whether or not humans have intrinsic value, or indeed what the word intrinsic even means. And they're, they are deep. I, I, they're, um, you know, people who are agnostic and atheistic are not soulless. I mean, you know, they're, they're profound, thoughtful, interesting thinkers. Well, not... Most are. <laughs> That's another topic. Uh, but there are some really interesting bloggers, and if you're interested, I can send you, if you email me, I can send you some of the links that I've been reading about what it, but the discussion really is very pointed, and it tends to fall into two camps. One says it's just erroneous to say that, that humans have any value at all. We just say we have value because we don't want to kill each other. So, but we have, it's sort of like we have to pretend like we have value. And then there's more, moving more towards the agnostic camp. No, human beings really do have worth and value, but we have a really hard time defining why or what that means. So there's debates within this. But it's not assumed uh, in the world out there that you have value as a human being. And in fact, uh, predating Judeo-Christian society, it was presumed that you did not <coughs> have value as a human being in most societies. Uh, so, uh, and I just... You're familiar with this passage, but let's read it aloud here. Genesis uh, chapter 1, verses 26 to 30. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, in the image of God, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the, all the wild animals, <coughs> and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. There's no, no asterisk there. We're all made in God's image. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, 
Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, if it wasn't clear enough already, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. They belong to us. We are stewards and cultivators of the earth. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food and so on. We have intrinsic value. And there is a voice that whispers to us all, or there's, um, you know, an ill wind, if you will, or what Satan wants you to believe. Satan wants you to think either too much of yourself or too little of yourself. He's happy with either. You can pick one. And that's the gentle hand at the small of your back pushing you forward into one of those camps is the hand of evil. On the one hand, he wants you to either hate yourself to despise your being, to despise your being, and for you to believe that you have nothing of worth to offer. You've all heard that voice. Haven't you all heard that voice? I hear that voice. You have nothing of worth to offer, that you don't matter with a capital M. In fact, maybe if you're deep down in that camp, maybe the, even the concept of mattering is a false one. Nothing can matter. But more common, at least what I see more often when I talk to people who are struggling with this internally, it's not that they don't matter at all uh, or that they are completely worthless, but you might have a sense, a strong sense, that those people over there have a lot more to offer than you do. Those people over there are a lot better than you, frankly. Those are the smart people. They're the effective people or the handsome, beautiful people, and they're wiser than you or they're more ethical or more productive or more loving, and you are not that special. You're on the tier of things, you're lower. You may not think you're completely worthless, but you don't think you're worth much. And as far as I can see, pastorally, that's just as painful. <laughs> it's just as destructive and uh, just as terrible. There are so many Bible passages that disprove this point or push against it that make your worth plain that it's very hard to pick through them <laughs> or pick one and give a brief sermon. So, um, I just picked uh, a couple here. Um, Matthew uh, 10, verses uh, 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Just That's Jesus speaking, of course, and Matthew saying, you have tremendous worth. Just reiterating what uh, was in Genesis. Sort of as an aside, I don't know if it's an aside or not, but it's, it's in my notes, so here we go. Our worth is directly related to our judgment. God judges us because of the depth of our worth. The animal kingdom is not judged in the same way. It doesn't, it's not made in the image of God in the same way. It doesn't have the same sense of right and wrong or reflection of God's image in the same way. And as much as we struggle with the concept of judgment of us, of our souls, of our actions. It's a reflection of the depth of our worth. Because, of course, if, you don't, if you're not worth it, if you have no value, if you're, not, you're not even worth judging. You're just, you're just there. You're just existing. But you are worth judging. It matters what you do. And, in fact, the, the passage right before the one I just read, the two sparrows sold for a penny, 
right preceding that is Jesus saying, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so right after that, he says, and you're worth a lot. Jesus relates the concept of judgment to your worth, your profound worth. Um, and of course, the famous one you all know, John 3.16. Well, maybe you don't all know it, but you know, if you've watched any sports, which I haven't, but presumably it's there. Uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, uh, 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 oh, geez, so that, <laughs> so that you should, uh, uh, yeah, may not perish, but have life. Car Dieu a tant aimé le monde et qu'il a donné son fils unique afin que quiconque croit en lui ne périsse point, mais qu'il ait la vie éternelle. Amen. Amen. If you come up here and read the rest of the sermon like that. People might not get as much out of it, but they would love it. <laughs> but uh, another one I wanted to mention, too, because um, it's interesting to me, or, or it's, uh, to me it's the first instance of the depth of our value before God in the Bible, is the story of Cain. And, of course, you know the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel both, both brought their offerings before the Lord. Uh, Cain's was found wanting, and Cain was angry because the Lord was like, do better next time. And Cain thought that meant, I'm going to kill my brother, and that'll be my doing better. Um, but jealousy, it's the first instance of a jealous rage, a jealous murder. And so he kills his brother. You're familiar with the story. Um, but, it, of course, it's what's after that that I find so compelling and so amazing. Cain has sinned, and not only sinned, but committed to this day one of the most egregious sins a human being can commit which is killing out of a jealous rage, and not just that, but a, a family member. I mean, that, that's still one of the most heinous, terrible crimes you can commit. And so God, first of all, God doesn't just smash him or destroy him just, uh, just right away, which would have been a viable, and I think, uh, you know, eye for eye, blood for blood, a legal ramification, uh, but he banishes him. And then Cain has the chutzpah, I <laughs> have to say that, to say, my punishment's too great for me to bear. I'm going to be killed because uh, out there in the world. And God says, no, I will protect you. I will put my mark on you. That's the famous mark of Cain. We don't know what it is, but I'll put my mark on you and you will not be killed. I will be your protector. Saying that to someone who had just murdered his brother. To me, that's indicative of the depth of how much God valued Cain, this murderer, the, the depth of, of value that he had, even in spite of his sin. So, I, as just one example of many, as I said, thousands of Bible pastors, how much, and the whole Bible really is a love letter to the human race of how much God cares about us, um, especially the cross, but we'll get to that later. So, that, one of the ways that um, Satan puts up a barrier to the gospel is for, for us to believe we have no value and no worth. Because if you have no value and no worth, you don't, deserve forgiveness and you don't you may not even want it you're just full of such self-hatred and self-loathing that you know you just can't get there and so that's one of the first messages people need to hear from churches and from the from biblical speakers of truth which is you and me that you have worth god loves you that's the first message that a lot of times people need to hear not always but often it's the first one because if you don't get beyond that there's nothing there's no point to the rest of it that you have tremendous worth and god loves you the second truth of us. There's another sin that Satan loves 
just as much and is happy to push you in that direction. Which isn't that you have no value at all or no worth at all, but it's the other way, that you are one of the beautiful people. That you believe on some level that you really are up there among the Mensa elite or whatever it looks like in terms of either looks or charisma or intelligence or education. Education's a big one in this community. That you are kind, you're just a cut above. And you would never say it. You're too polite to say it. Uh, you know, you're too smart <laughs> to say it. You may not even admit it to yourselves. But uh, you might have in the dead of night encountered that within yourself and realized, you know what, I actually do believe that I'm kind of better than this person in a moment of shock and horror, which I have experienced, <laughs> that you are that person. You have more to offer than others. You're a compelling, intelligent, ethical person. You might, if you're a Christian, you might know that God loves you, but inside the voices, why wouldn't he? <laughs> well, really. I mean, you might, again, it's not something you might say overtly, but you might, Satan loves that in us when we get to feeling like this. Basically, you're a good person. I mean, we hear that a lot, right? Basically, you're a good person. And in fact, that's a, a mantra of the age, of, of, the, uh, of this generation, which wasn't a mantra of the age historically. The notion that basically you're a good person is a very modern concept. And you may not be anxious about the day of judgment or not even believe in judgment, because what have you done? You've lived a good life. You know, you've paid your taxes, you love your kids, if you have kids. You haven't done harm to anyone. Another favorite, I haven't hurt anyone. Or I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want to do any harm to anyone. So I'm a good person. I hear these things a lot. And so why would you repent? Well, in fact, how could you repent? If that's what you believe, what would you repent of? I had this very conversation with Bill Sutton in 1993-ish or something like that. And, um, and I'm... Uh, having coffee with him, not using these words, but basically saying I didn't really think I was a sinner. I just didn't think I was. I was basically a good person. I really believe that. Um, and sometimes vestiges of that live in me still. Largely, it's killed off. <laughs> but I have met people and continue to meet people who really hold that view. And sometimes... <clears throat> There are many different kinds. I don't want to get too deep into the psychology of human beings. That's a, a very deep topic. But there are many different reasons why somebody might hold that kind of view. Sometimes people hold that kind of view, hold it defensively, because they are so broken and so hurt and so despondent that they have to hold on to the view that they're a good person. I actually just had somebody uh, come to me at the circulation desk where I work at the library not too long ago, a lady who was uh, in some distress, and I worked with her for almost half an hour, and it became clear over the course of that time that she was one of the good people. So many people had wronged this lady, <laughs> and she told me all about them, very specifically. And uh, she was there to get some stuff notarized, and she had she'd run into someone else's car, and she had to do some things with the DMV, but the DMV wasn't treating her right. Well, actually, I did believe that. that, that I give her that one. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't really her fault that she ran into the car, and the other person's... Uh, just you, you know, you've met this person, right, who everything is not their fault. They're a good person, and they have to hold on to that. And I got the feeling this lady was just so broken and sad deep down inside that if she, let, if she got in touch, let herself get in touch with her sinfulness with no notion of God's grace or mercy or a community to hold her underneath that, that there was just an abyss beneath her feet. I had the feeling she was pretty unhappy. I said none of this to her. I just notarized her documents and prayed for her as she left. But 
that that's the kind of thing that's a different kind of attitude um, and it's uh, just as just as poisonous and what it pushes away against is this notion that I'm sinful or broken intrinsically sinful and broken and so it's important that we believe that we that you are sinful and broken true beliefs always bear good fruit if there's a mantra of, of, of my life or something I believe if you believe something that is true it will bear good fruit, even if it's a hard truth and you don't want to look it in the eye. If you believe it and it's true, it will bear good fruit. God is the God of truth, and Satan is the father of lies. That's a, a simple truth. So, just uh, Psalm 14, uh, verse 2 through 3. Uh, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who, underst- <clears throat> any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. No one who does good. Matthew 7, part of a larger parable that Jesus is teaching, he says, If you then, though you are evil, speaking to all of us, not to a select group, it was to everybody, not to the Pharisees, to everybody, if you then, though you are evil, no asterisk there, just know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? It's just an assumed reality of the life of Christ, who is our Lord, that you are an evil person. I mean, do you really believe that? It's hard. I, I find this challenging. Maybe you don't. But to hold these two in tension is the Christian life. That's the Christian walk. It's not a self-help organization where, you, where I'm not trying... The Bible is not trying to make you feel good about yourself, nor is it trying to make you feel bad about yourself. In fact, we're trying to do away with those concepts as a whole, but rather to follow God, which entails a whole different mindset and a whole different way of walking and believing. There's a, a third thing, which I think is important to bring up, because we talked some about some of the words that meant sin in the Hebrew Bible and the Greek, in the Hebrew and Greek last week. Um, and we talked about those words as meaning like, like a bro- one of the words means broken, like a chair that's been broken and no longer works as a chair. That's one of the words from Hebrew that means sin. We talked about it as missing a mark, like an archer or someone who shoots at a target and misses. And that's a word, that actual word of missing a mark in the Hebrew means sin. And also in the Greek, hamartia uh, means the same thing. And so those are concepts of sin, but as metaphors usually do, they fail at a particular point. Those metaphors fail because the chair doesn't want to be broken and also doesn't want to be fixed. I mean, it doesn't even have any concept of being a chair. There's no desire there. So if it's broken or not, it doesn't matter to it. The archer who's trying to hit the mark and misses is still trying to hit the mark. It's still trying. There's sort of a good deed intentionality within that word, right? Aiming, trying to do right, but failing, which is an aspect of sin to be sure. But there's a level of, there's a, a, a biblical witness to sin that isn't caught by either of those metaphors. And, uh, Caleb, you want to put up the next one here? That we desire evil, like an archer who purposefully shoots away from the target, or a chair that wants to be broken, or something like that. Um, the most famous uh, passage on this in the Bible, of course, is the Romans 7 passage of Paul being like, why do I do what I don't want to do? Or, I mean, it's a very, it's a long, I didn't want to start reading it because it gets, it's sort of convoluted, but it's, it encapsulates this idea that we want to do evil, 
that we have a desire for evil. Um, that I think is why Jesus calls us so unambiguously evil. It's not that we're a broken chair that we tried to hit the mark and missed it. We have a desire for evil in us. There, there's something appealing in it to us and for us. Uh, I'm sure most of you have some idea of what I speak. Uh, somebody who put it tremendously eloquently, uh, I, I always remember this passage after I read it. This is in St. Augustine's Confessions. Um, I don't know if you've read this book or not. Some of you probably have, some of you haven't. It's just a tremendous spiritual biography um, written in the 4th century A.D. Um, so I'm going to read this passage, and this is uh, Augustine as a teenager. And he shares very deeply, candidly, and graphically sometimes about his growing up as a teenager in terms of sin and virtue and his sexuality and all the things. I mean, it's a, it's a very revealing book. And... This book, um, this part of the book here, this chapter, he's starting to get in touch with his own sin as he, as he becomes an adolescent and he starts to experience it. <clears throat> so, uh, and he, he comes from a, St. Augustine came from a sort of an upper middle class background, not necessarily top tier wealthy, <laughs> but, you know, well off for the time. <clears throat> uh, let's see if I find the start here. Theft receives certain punishment by your law, Lord, and by the law written in the hearts of men, which not even iniquity itself destroys. For what thief can with equanimity endure being robbed by another thief? He cannot tolerate it even if he is rich and the other is destitute. I wanted to carry out an act of theft, and did so, driven by no kind of need other than my inner lack of any sense of, or feeling for, justice. Wickedness filled me. I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. My desire was to enjoy not what I had sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and the doing of what was wrong. And then he gets quite specific. There was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit, though attractive in neither color nor taste. To shake the fruit off the tree and carry off the pears, I and a gang of naughty adolescents set off late at night after in our use usual pestilential way, we had continued our game in the streets. We carried off a huge load of pears, but they were not for our feasts, but merely to throw to the pigs. Even if we ate a few, nevertheless our pleasure lay in doing what was not allowed. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart. You had pity on it when it was at the bottom of the abyss. Now let my heart tell you what it was seeking there, and that I became evil for no reason." I had no motive for my wickedness, except wickedness itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved the self-destruction. I loved my fall. Not the, object, not the object for which I had fallen, but my fall itself. My depraved soul leapt down from your firmament to ruin. I was seeking not to gain anything by shameful means, but shame for its own sake. So it's kind of a poetic passage, but... From the heart. I mean, you can hear him really trying to get down to the core of who he was as an adolescent, enjoying doing something bad for the sake of being bad. And this is what lies at the heart of a lot of our humanity. Uh, I mean, a lot of marriages falter on those rocks. A lot of, um, you know, when we let those desires uh, consume us and take us over of any kind, uh, economic or what have you, we enjoy doing lawless and forbidden things. It has an attractive element in it. 
And this is an important part of the Christian anthropology, I think, and I, I include it here because it's a little different than, I hope you see number two, and just that we're sort of almost just accidentally sinful, uh, like that we, we have no will in it. Um, sometimes we can use the language of addiction to protect ourselves from our desire to sin. Not that I don't believe in addiction, and not that there aren't, I mean, this, that's a careful line to walk, because there are things that people are more prone to than I am. Um, can't think of them right now, but uh, I don't enjoy the taste of hard liquor. It makes me sick. I couldn't, I couldn't be an alcoholic, uh, you know, drinking like that every day. I just, it would not be fun for me. And so there are people who are prone to that, and we have to have compassion on that level uh, because, nevertheless, there is this element, too, that is there, the desire to, to be evil and to do evil. And those two have to both, they're both there in us. Um, so I think that's an important part of the human anthropology. Okay. So what I want to end with here, then, is uh, a note that I will expand into a full song of a sermon next week, I think. But the note of what then... So if this is us, and this is the human anthropology, and I, I don't have time to go into how this pushes against the secular humanism anthropology of the world... It's probably pretty apparent on the surface. Maybe sometime we'll take some time to talk more about it in depth. But of more interest to me is what the cross does, of what grace does with regard to this anthropology. Or how both of those get in the way of the cross. Both of those get in the way of grace. Obviously, if you think too much of yourself, you don't need the cross. And if you think too little, you're going to think you don't deserve it or it has nothing to do with you. So we have to hold these things in tension and communicate to people in equal strength, God loves you. You have such tremendous worth. You're worth more than all of creation. Humans are created at the top of creation. And I really believe that. And I don't believe it's a speciation event of... Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a divine spiritual reality um, that's hard to, to get our heads around, gets our mind around, but is very true. The depth of our, our value before God you know, I love my dogs. I do. I love them both, and I um, care for them. I would feed them both to my children <laughs> if they were hungry. <laughs> and that's not because... And, and I think every human being has that worth. Uh, if you think of somebody who's in prison here and, uh, and, and who's done a heinous murder, like a Cain or Abel situation, some terrible thing, a horrible thing, I still believe that human being whom I don't know and I don't love the way I love my children has more worth than my dogs, has more value, has been made in God's image. So it's not about, you know, just my children and some possessiveness thing. There's a value to the human being. And then, of course, the sinful brokenness part. If people don't believe that, they're, they're going to, first of all, their, their railroads are going to go way off, their train's going to go way off the, the tracks. And that's just that's a that's a basic math equation. One plus one equals two. But they also won't be able to feel the cross. They won't be able to see the cross. Their need for forgiveness. And what happens? This will be my last thought. My last comment. This. What happens when a human being with these qualities gives themselves to Jesus? What happens? Because what doesn't happen, or at least I would argue this. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going into more conjecture territory, but I I think I feel pretty confident about it. But push against me later in private, if you feel differently. I don't think what happens when we give ourselves to Christ 
Our desire to be ethical does not suddenly become stronger than our desire to be sinful. We don't suddenly become people like, well, I just want to be holy every day. That's not what happens. At least that wasn't my experience when I was baptized and gave myself to Christ. What did happen, and this is fascinating to me, is that my love for God, my love for heaven, my love for holy things in general, my love for the person of Jesus, suddenly became greater than my love for sin. And that's different than desire for. Does that make sense? I might still desire to do sin. I might still have a, a, a sinful heart. But my love, and um, well, I'm going to that now. My love for God was greater than my love for sin. That's what happened when I gave my life to Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit within me, apart from any effort on my own, which I have discovered my efforts are rather uh, paltry, feeble, and other words like that. <laughs> it wasn't my effort. It was the sanctification of the Holy Spirit within me that really does work through me over the course of time. If I have the love, if I hold on to that love and my gratitude, which is why repentance for me is a daily, not a one-off, but a a daily experience of saying, God, (laughs) you know, have mercy on me, wretched sinner that I am. I need you now just as much as I did in 1994 when I gave my life to you. And that's what happens. And all that resolves and takes care of itself for eternity. Would you pray with me?